had a dream about this place. This is from Antoon van den Brambusche in The Silence of Belgium. Quote, The silence of Belgium is indeed firmly rooted in the historical necessity of the entire nation, in the destiny, and maybe in the construction of a common soul. This silence forces us to confront the absence of the past, the collective amnesia, and the politics of forgetting that cut through the centrifugal forces of the Belgian state. The historical consciousness of Belgium as a national entity typically pertains to a specific ideology. It is normally embodied in an explicit discourse which serves vested or reclaimed interests of the Belgian state. The emphasis is on the construction of a past and of an identity wrapped in a historical consciousness that serves as its ideological justification. It is here that the different versions tend to be transcended by a common destiny, sometimes even a common blind spot, which normally leads to a politics of memory, or maybe better, a politics of forgetting, in which past events are silenced because they pose a real threat to the feeling of mutual trust and to national identity. Historical experience is silenced because it cannot be reconciled with or made useful for present concerns. So, willed historical amnesia, the, the politics of forgetting. Now, this is something that we mentioned last time out, or certainly alluded to. It's something that remains a feature of Belgian political life today, and it really bleeds through virtually every line of the final report of the Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry in charge of determining the exact circumstances of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba and the possible involvement of Belgian politicians. That is the full title of that report, by the way. Now, so much about Belgium and this series only makes sense once you get to grips with the way the Belgian establishment has embraced the historical necessity of forgetting. And you can find no more graphic an illustration of that than um, its approach to its own colonial past. Selective amnesia is integral as well to how my country thinks of itself and processes its own history which is why i recognize it you know now governments and powerful state institutions manipulating national memory it isn't something unique to belgium or the uk obviously 
but the kind of amnesia I'm talking about here has a very specific function in Belgium because the act of forgetting was basically adopted as informal state policy by a country that viewed the Congo as the place where it could finally complete itself. Now to Leopold, you know, King Leopold and what we could call the colonial party behind him, you know, that pro-imperialist wing of the establishment, even after the Belgian revolution of 1830, um, the country of Belgium was still only embryonic. It was still just an idea. Remember, he used to say small country, small people. And to them, Belgium could only be truly born in Africa. And even as Leopold took over the Congo, acre by acre, and the blood began to flow, the process of forgetting began. And this process was facilitated by another crucial foundational lie that the Belgians who supported Leopold chose or pretended to believe. And that lie was that Leopold, and by extension Belgium, uh, was engaged in a great civilizing crusade. Now here are some other questions we need to keep front and center and because they're relevant to the series as we go along. So what does it do to a national psyche when the political necessity of forgetting means that you don't or won't remember how your nation was completed in the first place? And then what kind of monsters are born in that fog of collective world amnesia? And maybe most crucially for us, is it possible those monsters came back to haunt Belgium after their empire collapsed? So Belgium set up this commission of inquiry in large part because of the work of uh, Ludo de Witt, who published The Assassination of Lumumba in 1999. Now, the standard account of Lumumba's overthrow and assassination is that the CIA did it, but DeWitt draws a much more detailed and nuanced picture. And while he accepts that the CIA and Western business and the UN, you know, especially um, Dag Hammarskjöld, while he accepts they were fully supportive of Lumumba's removal, the agency had mostly handed the operation over to the Belgians by December of 1960. The Belgians ran point, basically, and the job of those other entities was to provide cover and assistance, but the tactics and the decisions were almost all Belgian. They were overseen by the CIA. And again, this episode, it isn't necessarily a history of the Congo, but it's an examination of the role that Belgium played in Africa and how the rise and fall of this imperial project of theirs influenced the story that we're telling. Now, remember the last episode, the Congo served many functions for Belgium, especially in the way that it, it unified its ruling class and created these new networks of relationships between them. And it's no coincidence that some of the people we are going to discuss tonight also appear as suspects in the X dossiers or as these ghostly figures lurking behind various clandestine operations in Belgium itself. More on that later in the series. Now, although the committee report presents itself as, you know, a, a no stone unturned type deal, 
almost every other line is full of queasy apologism and sly manipulations of what little was then known publicly about an extremely murky period in Belgian and African history. And you get a feel for what I'm talking about here when you encounter passages like this, quote, when reading, thinking about, and discussing this case, it should be recognized that people will always tend to analyze and comment on the facts from their current perspective on the world and current institutions. The period investigated runs from 1960 to 1961. Although the fundamental principles of democracy and international policies were also valid then, it is useful to look at the historical context because from certain points, the standards, ethics and norms of international politically correct thinking were different then than they are today. So yeah, you, you find an explicit example of the colonial mindset when you read interviews with you know Belgians who lived in Congo at the time, people who took part in the, the management of the colony, or when you look at the children of the empire. I found a very telling uh, interview with Hodelive Sute, who is the daughter of the Belgian colonial cop who chopped up Lumumba's body and dissolved it in acid. She was interviewed by a Belgian magazine for the 55th anniversary of Lumumba's murder. And in this interview, you get some great insights into the effects of colonialism on the people who are colonizing, you know. Uh, so yeah, she, she says that she still lives in mortal terror that Lumumba's family are going to come looking for her. And during the interview, she expresses incredulity that the Belgian government apologized to Lumumba's surviving relatives before apologizing to her family for ordering my father to do what he did, as she puts it. Now, bear in mind that Gerard Sute, uh, her dad, he's the guy who kept um, Lumumba's teeth, his, you know, his gold cap molars, and I believe one of his fingers as well. And he may have kept some of the bullets that actually um, killed him. Now, our boy, uh, DeWitt, he came through here and he filed a police complaint against Hodelieve after she showed this tooth off to the uh, the journalists who were interviewing her. In this interview, uh, she says some unbelievable, outrageous things, you know, um, and I've pulled one quote in particular, and forgive me here for this, but, uh, quote, it was a beautiful life growing up in the Congo. The blacks were happy too. How many times did my boy, her Congolese servant, cry when he heard we were leaving. He helped with the housework, but he got just as much food as we did. A black person always has the tendency to imitate a white person. My children will call me racist, but I just still have colonial fibers. I subconsciously assume a white person is superior to a black person. And she also refers to these mysterious missions that her dad and her uncle, uh, Mikel, would be ordered to undertake, you know, and these missions could mean the family sometimes went days and uh, even weeks occasionally without seeing them. And her uncle was a commander in the Katanga police. It might be tempting to hate on Hodeliev, but I also think we see in her story a microcosm 
you know, of the, the bigger forces at play in Belgium and the Congo, you know, the way that the colonial project poisoned everything that it touched and, and dehumanized not just its victims, but the perpetrators as well. And she describes how her dad was a very capricious man. He was prone to sudden outbursts of anger or long periods of depression. And she also says that this got worse as he rose through the ranks of the Belgian colonial police and was trusted to handle more and more uh, violent covert operations. Uh, he came home smelling of whiskey the night that he disposed of Lumumba because it was apparently a long-standing practice of the cops on body detail uh, to do shots of whiskey, you know, so that they could cope with disposing of bodies and also pour it over themselves to cover up the stench of a dead body as it gets dissolved in acid. Um, she also mentions his role in a massacre in Katanga and how this was the first time that she learned what dead bodies smelled like. Now, the violence that uh, Gerard was responsible for, you know, the secrets that he carried with him about how Belgian colonial rule really worked, this cast a very dark shadow over the domestic situation. And in the aftermath of the Lumumba hit, he took to drinking extremely heavily and psychologically torturing his daughters. There's no other way to describe it, really. Uh, when a couple of local Belgian boys tried to rape Hodliev while the rest of the family was out, uh, on finding out about this, Gerard punished her for promiscuity by enrolling her in boarding school and um, cutting her off from family and friends. And as a result... Uh, Hodliev tried to commit suicide and failed. And then a year later, he became increasingly paranoid that his other daughter, uh, Maggie, was, as he called her, a whore. And the daily threats and intimidation that he directed at her eventually led to her successfully killing herself with an overdose of painkillers. The poison spreads everywhere, is what I'm trying to say. So beyond world amnesia and political considerations at the time of writing, another factor influencing the final shape of the committee's report is the Belgian establishment's obstinate refusal to ever criticize or question the monarchy. Now we'll get into why the role of the Belgian monarchy in all of this is so contentious. Um, you'll see as we go along. Um, but for now, it's... Worth remembering that King Baudouin played an extremely aggressive, um, vicious role in all of this. He was right in the middle, you know, of the decision making. And yet the Belgian establishment to this day refuses to touch that, refuses to, you know, interrogate exactly what he was doing. But yeah, for now, it's worth looking at the state of things in the Belgian Congo just before independence. So by 1960, Belgian Congo was distinct from the Congo Free State in that it was actually a full-fledged colony. You know, uh, it had a white European population of uh, settlers, racially segregated from black Africans and granted more rights and legal protections than them. You know, don't forget that the Congo Free State had really been a kind of private uh, corporation that King Leopold had uh, set up for his own 
profit and the profit of his friends. Uh, so yeah, abuse, corruption, violence, racism, they were the norm, naturally. Uh, by the 1950s, the Belgian, what they called the colonial trinity of private capital, the state, and the church was firmly entrenched. The church ran the schools, and it provided the Congolese a very limited education that was designed to ensure their continued proletarianization, uh, I suppose, and, you know, a steady supply of cheap and easily exploited labor. And this was a principle known as no elite, no problem, or pas d'élite, pas de problème in French. The church facilitated what George Enzangola Entalasia has described as a system of cultural oppression managed by Christian missionaries. The Belgian state and private capital had become so enmeshed in Congo that they were virtually one and the same thing. You know, you couldn't untangle where the state ended and the private corporations began. And state officials became rich off deals that they cut with Belgian firms operating in the Congo. And the firms knew their assets and investments were protected by the Belgian military and the security services. So if talk of independence or liberation did evolve into organized resistance, you know, the force publique would be unleashed or allied tribes would be unleashed to crack down on dissent. After World War II, the Belgian colonial establishment and its Western supporters, they grew more fanatically obsessed with the threat of communism, as we know. Now, Belgium enlisted the aid of guys like André Moyen, um, as mentioned last episode, and most of the operatives they turned to after World War II were very similar to him. You know, they were spooks or colonial military brass who also usually had business interests in the Congo. You know, they had some kind of personal stake. Um, now, Moyen traveled there to coordinate what were by now being referred to as anti-communist operations. His crocodile network was one of, I'm sure, dozens of ad hoc secret paramilitary and espionage groups that recruited, you know, freelance mercs, white supremacists, informants in, you know, the uh, Congolese anti-colonial movement, and just, you know, true believers in the colonial cause. Uh, and they ran what were effectively counterinsurgency operations in the Congo and surrounding countries, you know, like Rhodesia, places like that. Now, defeating the threat of communism in the Congo, that eventually replaced the civilizing mission uh, that had previously been used to justify uh, Belgian presence there. Tokumbi Lumumba Kasongo uh, says this, quote, Belgian financial groups dominated investments and controlled the colonial economy. Societe Generale, the largest financial institution in Belgium and one of the holding companies in Union Minière, this is the uh, UMHK, that's the mining firm with huge interests in Congo, held almost two-thirds of the investments in the economy. In the UMHK, the CSK had 35%, and Tanganyika Concessions Limited maintained 20%. And tying all of this together was the Belgian monarchy, as De Witt describes, quote, the palace was at the center of an economic and financial network in which links between the dynasty and the Belgian elite were woven together around the defense of the colonial purse. 
This should come as no surprise since the history of Belgium, the royal dynasty, the Société Générale, and the Belgian Congo are deeply entwined. This was effectively Leopold's dream fulfilled. So after World War II, this colonial elite, it was forced to reckon with the spread of anti-colonial struggle and resistance to Belgian rule and a pressing need as well to boost Belgium's domestic post-war economy. So they embarked on a spree of infrastructure development in Africa and a more efficient integration of the Congolese economy into Belgium's. And at the same time, they tried to raise the living standards of Congolese workers in sectors of the economy that were of particular importance to Belgian private capital and this broader geopolitical situation, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But they were trying to do this without raising the wages of workers above subsistence levels. And they were relying on uh, the colonial police and the military and these paramilitary networks we described to take care of, you know, labor disputes. So it was a very much a, a carrot and stick with emphasis on the stick sort of approach. The Belgian elite's control of the Congo was part of what helped them forge these very close ties to the US military industrial complex. This is that broader geopolitical situation I'm talking about. Because by World War II, the Congo was the largest exporter of tin in Africa. And most of the uranium that had been used in the Manhattan Project came from there. And Belgium mostly made a mess of attempting to incorporate these rural and agricultural laborers into the Congo's economy. But for all that, the Belgian Congo did see an economic boom after 1945 and a new class of Congolese emerged, which was the Evolus. Now, the Evolus were a new middle class of Congolese workers who filled jobs in white-collar sectors of the economy, right? And these could be administrative clerks or doctors or nurses or mid-level bureaucrats, you know, stuff like that. And in addition to being uh, literate and well-educated and skilled, the colonial government also required them to disconnect, as they put it, from their African social groups. And to yeah, achieve evolu status, they were expected to be practicing Christians, speak only French, all to prove that they were committed to the process of becoming honorary Europeans, um, evolved ones, which is what Evolus means. Patrice Lumumba was actually part of this class and his story followed a pattern very similar to other Evolus. The Evolus constituted a kind of a Congolese elite 
and initially they had no real desire to overthrow the colonial order um, because they were an emerging, I suppose, petit bourgeois. And this was the aftermath of World War II, so they were looking for equality of opportunity with their Belgian counterparts when it came to jobs and pay. The civic metric card system was implemented by the Belgians as a way to reward Evolus, who had proven especially loyal you know, to the colonial project. And it was also an attempt to dodge the question of equal rights and equal pay. Um, the Belgians were quite proud of this idea as well. They considered it a great moment of political and civic compromise, you know, an example of enlightened colonial management. Now, Evolus, who did obtain the civic metric card, they were expected to act as intermediaries between the colonists and the colonized, you know. And they were granted extra rights and freedom of movement to formerly whites-only areas in cities in the Congo. And in some cases, they were permitted to join social clubs and some other previously segregated organizations. And then in 1952, the Belgians introduced immatriculation, uh, which is a status maybe one rung above um, people who had the civic metric card. In practical terms, this meant that Evolus were now subjected to European or Belgian courts and laws rather than African ones, which that was handy, you know, if they brought a civil claim or something against somebody. But they were still also subjected to laws that only applied to Africans, and they had no chance of being paid the same as a white European living in the Belgian Congo doing the same job. Evolus, who came around to the idea of decolonization, anti-imperialism. They initially couched their arguments in the language of incrementalism, you know, because for them, national liberation was, um, it was going to be a slow, patient process of proving to the Belgian state that the Congolese people were um, responsible enough to govern themselves. And this reflected the Belgian establishment's own views on decolonization as late as 1958, in fact, Belgian academics were advising the government that it would take at least 30 years to fully withdraw from the Congo. But even then, 1988 as an exit point was actually viewed as way too soon. You know, in some cases, the Belgian elite saw no reason why they couldn't have a footprint in Congo for at least another century. And this should give us some idea of how blasé and blinded they were to the spread of anti-colonial politics in Africa as the 50s rolled on. So yeah, when the civic metric card and immatriculation systems failed to address their demands for equal pay and social standing, some Evolus then adopted more radical anti-colonial politics, which brings us back to Lumumba. Lumumba worked variously as a postal clerk, a beer salesman, an accountant, uh, and he received the metric card. He was a trade union organiser, he was a member of the Liberal Party of Belgium as well, and he wrote uh, poems and articles for Congolese papers and magazines that expressed anti-imperialist sentiments, you know. Uh, he was arrested too for embezzling about three grand from the post office and he was given a year inside. So between 1956 and 1957, he wrote a sort of 
memoir and autobiography and political treaties that laid out his politics. And we can broadly say that as of 1957, he was a moderately nationalist. He was a committed anti-imperialist and he was moving towards a a stronger pan-Africanist ideological position. His uh, pan-Africanist outlook was influenced by his ethnic background as well. He was from quite a small ethnic group that had very little influence in the Congo. So he embraced a philosophy that an independent Congolese government should create policy that was designed to cut across these ethnic divides and uplift every group. He was not some kind of, you know, gun-toting Maoist or radical. And despite what the Belgian committee report says, it's debatable whether the Western imperial powers and their intelligence agencies ever sincerely believed he was a potential African Castro. Um, In fact, Richard Bissell, CIA guy, he inadvertently exposed this in later years when he said that he couldn't actually remember why the CIA had supported uh, Lumumba's overthrow and assassination. Uh, Was it because he was too far to the right? Was it because he was too far to the left? Don't know. Happened years ago. Ah, well. Uh, Congo did fine in the end, you know, it had a great 90s. And this mystification of Lumumba's politics and this determination to make him somehow culpable for his own death, which is ultimately what this all is, uh, you know, because of his rhetoric and his uncompromising anti-imperialism, has been a long-standing project of the West, especially the Belgians. Um, Against my better judgment last month, I skimmed his Wikipedia entry, shouldn't have done that, and the amount of space given over to balance quotes from Western journalists and diplomats and politicians condemning the speech that he gave in front of King Baudouin, it actually shocked me, you know, and I thought I was past that now, but even today, they're still trying to justify what happened to him. While claiming to feel, you know, regret and guilt. Now, even without the prison spell, Lumumba was already disenchanted with the Evolu system. You know, it might have been why he embezzled the money in the first place. And he was disenchanted because it would never allow him to have the same rights as white Europeans. So after prison, he founded the MNC, which was the Congolese National Movement. And if you really want to know why they hit Lumumba, and this should come as no surprise, really, it's because by 1960, he was adamant that Congo should not only be independent, but it should also use its incredible resource wealth for the benefit of its people, you know, not Western capital. And moreover, he had the the charisma and the passion and the wit and the rhetorical flair to sell other Congolese people on his vision. Now, I don't need to draw you a picture of how many crooked deals and geopolitical alliances this project of economic liberation would append. But factor in as well his embrace of pan-Africanism, and we are starting to see what Western nations saw, which was the threat of a good example. At the MNC, it grew to about 59,000 members, 58,000 members, but it wasn't as unified as Lumumba would have liked it to be. You know, there was a lot of factionalism. Uh, there was a broad split between the more moderate Evolus and the more radical anti-imperialists who were comprised the party's base. And its main rival was um, 
Alliance des Bakongo, which was led by Joseph Kasavubu, who initially condemned the MNC for being insufficiently radical. Um, and all through 1958-1959, anti-colonial and nationalist sentiment spread through Belgian Congo, and there was a definitive divide between Evolus in terms of radicalism, and then between Evolus and the lower-class Congolese who were unemployed or otherwise excluded from the economic opportunities that had been granted to, you know, the honorary Europeans. And this culminated in the Leopoldville riot of January 1959, uh, which left about 500 people dead. Now, the Belgian government's response was harsh, you know, to each outbreak of civil unrest. And after the Stanleyville riot in November of 1959, they sent in two infantry companies and an armoured column and declared martial law. They were acutely aware by this point of the French troubles in Algeria and French Congo, you know, there'd also been the collapse of Indochina, as it was called. And as the riots continued on and off throughout 1959, Belgium was forced to acknowledge that its control of the Congo was untenable. And they announced an acceleration of the, the decolonization timeline. This was officially a three-stage plan that was to end in September of 1960 with an entirely independent Congolese government. Simultaneously, the Belgians began planning for how to safeguard their economic interests and ensure that they would play some kind of indirect role in shaping the future of an independent Congo that was favourable to its own economic and political objectives. This project fits the definition of what would come to be called neo-colonialism just a couple of years later. So as part of this process, uh, they held the Roundtable Conference in January of 1960. And this is where Belgian and Congolese representatives met in Brussels to negotiate this route to decolonization. Lumumba had been arrested, actually, for inciting a riot. And his trial was due to start on the same day as the conference until the Belgians were forced to let him attend. The conference is where it was decided the elections would be held in May of 1960, and June 30th was selected as the date for independence. And in the accounts of everything that happened in the period between Lumumba's election victory and his assassination, there is a lot of care taken to emphasize what a chaotic and fluid situation it was. You know, the West was simply reacting to events as they unfolded. But what needs to be made clear, as DeWitt has illustrated so starkly, is that the Belgians, backed fully by the Americans and the UN, made it their business to frustrate the Congolese at every turn. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to give you like an exhaustive day-by-day -day account of how everything fell apart for Lumumba and, you know, the chaos that unfolded in the Congo, because, like, DeWitt and other writers, like, yeah, Nzongola and Talesia, they have that covered, and I recommend you just seek out their work uh, for the accounts. We are interested in the methods the Belgians used to defeat Lumumba and the anti-colonial movement more broadly, and the networks that were deployed to implement those methods. Now, King Baudouin named uh, a guy called Walter Ganshoff van der Miche 
as Minister for African Affairs in 1959. He asked him to draw up a shortlist of names of Congo politicians who would be um, suitable figures to form a coalition government after independence. We should take a beat here to remind ourselves that Baudouin was already hostile to decolonization before Lumumba made his, you know, barnstorming speech in June of 1960. And he was as culpable as any other member of the Belgian colonial elite uh, for what happened in this period. Now, Van der Miche named Lumumba or Kasavubu. He favored them. Um, and he eventually settled on Lumumba after the election victory. The idea, ostensibly, was to choose someone who could unite the various factions in Congolese politics. Um, Lumumba was the real politic choice, I suppose, because of his immense popularity. But in actuality, it looks very much like he'd been set up to fail because the Belgian establishment recognized that his election was, you know, a serious impediment to this neo-colonial project. Uh, they had a broad idea of what his plans for Congo were because he'd been talking up um, using the country's resource wealth for the benefit of its own people. This was bad for Belgium, as we've said, because it directly affected the networks of international investors that it had long-standing ties with beyond Europe. And um, it also upset the outsized political influence that Belgium had as a result of this. Uh, by 1959, Belgian mining companies were also in bed with very heavy hitters from the US, you know, like the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers. These dynasties obviously have a lot of influence with the CIA uh, and the US government and beyond. So there's a lot here, you know, there's a lot at stake for Belgium. And more alarmingly, if you were a member of that Belgian colonial establishment, um, Lumumba had also told business figures during a visit to New York in 1959, quote, Belgium doesn't produce any uranium. It would be to the advantage of both of our countries if the Congo and the US worked out their own agreements in the future. So he's talking about Congo actually stepping around Belgium completely, cutting out the middleman and just selling uranium directly to the Americans. We can't have that. And so Van der Miche, he presented himself to Lumumba and his followers as a guy who just wanted to make Lumumba's job easier, but covertly, he'd been tasked with gumming up the machinery of government and finding anti-Lumumba factions who'd be useful in subverting Lumumba's agenda. Belgian intelligence too, they'd also turned many MNC officials by this point, and they were using them as informants and spies. And much of what they reported, you know, about Lumumba, his plans, his objectives, his politics, it was grotesquely exaggerated by uh, a colonial power that was looking for any excuse to derail independence. So they told themselves scare stories to justify the crisis that they were about to engineer. One of these spies would end up being the solution to Belgium's woes. He was a former journalist, soldier, and initially he was one of Lumumba's closest allies. And it was his charisma and his intelligence that had already impressed the CIA and Belgian intelligence, which is why they'd recruited him. And he'd been pegged as one to watch, you know, someone the West could do business with as these colonialists plotted against Lumumba. Now, this was Mobutu, and we will circle back to him. 
So once Lumumba was in power, a vast machine was mobilized against him. Earlier, we described how the Belgian monarchy was at the center of a huge network that encompassed everything from politics to finance to intelligence and corporations in the Congo for an idea of its complexity. Here is De Witt in The Assassination of Lumumba. Quote, when the Congo crisis broke out, the network operated like this. Gobert de Aspermont Linden was Lord Chamberlain at the court. He was also a commissioner of the Société Générale, an administrator of the Belgian Maritime Company uh, and the uh, Company of Katanga. Together with the honorary Lord Chamberlain, Prince Amori de Meriod represented the royal house on the College of Twelve Commissioners, which was the ruling body of the Société Générale. Uh, Gobert's nephew, uh, Harold de Aspirant Linden, ran the Belgian technical mission in Katanga, uh, which was called Mr. Bell. This is after the Katanga secession, which we'll get to, uh, and then became Minister for African Affairs. Count Robert Capel, former secretary to Leopold III, and Jean-Pierre Paulou, uh, King Baudouin's former assistant private secretary, had administrative functions in the Union Minière and several other colonial societies. Deputy Prime Minister Lila was a former president of Titan Anversois et des Ateliers de Leopoldville, uh, the president of the Belgian chamber, Baron Kroniker, and ministers Shaven, Wigny, and Albert de Vlieschauer were administrators of a whole series of colonial enterprises. This list is only the most visible tip of the iceberg. The incontrovertible political conclusion is that the political class, including the court, had a considerable direct material interest in the outcome of the Congo crisis. Now this is to say nothing of the, the CIA machinations here, or the way that Dag Hammarskjöld mobilized the UN and manipulated the, uh, the technicalities of international law in favor of the Belgians. Um, Hammarskjöld has been the beneficent of, you know, a lot of uh, hagiography for over 60 years now. But I recommend that you do some serious reading into the role that he played in Congo between 1959 and 1961 or so. Because he's been celebrated as this great peacemaker and diplomat, but he... He did have a very old-school patrician liberals attitude towards Africans and African self-governance. You know, he also personally found Lumumba off-putting and unlikable. Uh, I don't know what the Swedish equivalent of the word uppity would be, but if there is one, I'd be curious to know how often he used it um, to describe Lumumba. And he he allowed these personal feelings to color his approach to dealing with the Congo crisis and the various plots that had been hatched against Lumumba. Uh, oh, and I am not getting into uh, Sidney Gottlieb uh, creating a poison to take out Lumumba because it's not strictly relevant to the direction that we're approaching this story from. But I know the story extremely well. And I'm only bringing it up here so I don't get a fucking million emails asking why I didn't mention it. And yes, some of the players on the Belgian side are worth mentioning too. Um, many of the names tonight will probably appear again as we move forward in the Belgian X-Files. Um, some of them were even named you know, by ex-witnesses in the uh, 
the the true affair. So Harold Despermont Linden was the one who oversaw uh, what they called Operation Barracuda, which was the original plan to isolate and remove Lumumba. He was also close to uh, Maurice uh, Chumbe, who we'll be talking about soon. And he provided diplomatic cover for other players in this story. Uh, Linden's military advisor was called Jules Lou. Uh, Lou recruited the officers who would actually manage Barracuda on the ground. Notice the dilution of responsibility. You know, everybody is forever delegating in these kinds of uh, operations. Um, you had Major Noel Dedekin. He was a force publique commando. He was part of Barracuda. He in turn recruited 30 uh, Baluba tribesmen to assist in kidnapping Lumumba. They were in turn assisted by uh, J. Van Gogh, who was a Belgian spy, and E. Pillet, who was a freelance Belgian intelligence operative who probably did some work for uh, André Moyen's Crocodile Network. You had Etienne Davignon. He was a future vice president of the European Commission, chairman of Societe Générale as well in the 1980s, I believe. In 1960, though, he was just a diplomat in Brazzaville and he kept the Belgian government and the royal court updated on events. In one telegram, he wrote, quote, there is a lack of determination in taking action, which explains why Lumumba has not yet been rendered harmless. How's that for a euphemism? Uh, the overwhelming problem seems to be to remove Lumumba and unite Congolese leaders against him. Then we have uh, Pierre Wigny, who was the Belgian Minister for Foreign Affairs. He was close to one of President Kasavubu's advisors, who was George Denny. Uh, and it was this relationship that enabled him to convince Kasavubu that there was no political future in sticking by Lumumba and finally, you know, turning on it. Uh, his envoys included uh, Ambassador Robert Rothschild. Yes, he is one of those Rothschilds. And uh, Etienne Davignon. Uh, Louis Marlier... He was a retired Belgian colonel of the Force Publique. Uh, he was consulted on the Katanga secession. He would become one of Mobutu's advisors eventually. You had André Lehay, who was a colonial intelligence officer. And he was retired, but he still uh, shared his thoughts and advice with the Belgian government as the Congo crisis unfolded. And this is still only the visible tip of the iceberg. Streaming into the little town of Kitwe in northern Rhodesia, just across the border from the Congo, come the refugees, with whatever they could bring, and often bearing marks of the trouble they had getting away. Further north, at the frontier post of Kasumbalesa, families arrive by car and on foot, and even the children are armed. For in the tragedy that has struck the heart of Africa, these people were taking no chances. Rhodesian police take charge of the refugees' weapons for safekeeping until their possible return to the Congo. But some of them aren't too hopeful, remembering the sight of their burnt-out shops in Elizabethville. It'll be a long time before the Congo is back to normal, and who can predict what normal will need? In Elizabethville, under the protection of Belgian paratroopers, there are still refugees waiting at the boys' college to get away. Belgian troops in Elizabethville have the help of loyal Congolese. 
In Leopoldville, storm centre of the crisis, evidence of the bitterness that has swept the newborn republic can be seen on every hand. In this car, an Italian consul died, a neutral victim of a tragedy that grows more complex every day. Most Congolese hoped that independence would mean freedom and a chance to build up their own land. So far, it has meant anger and chaos, black against white, nation against nation. There's a long way to go before a new generation of Congolese can be proud of their freedom. So, the Congo crisis. Now, the Belgians had made sure to insert plenty of loopholes and clauses in the Treaty of Friendship that they signed with the Congolese government. So, any hint of instability or crisis that would give them permission to re-enter the country in force. Belgium, to be fair, had done an extremely piss-poor job of preparing Congo for self-governance anyway. Uh, One of Lumumba's most horrifying discoveries very early in office was the extent to which Belgium still penetrated almost every single institution in the Congo, even after independence. And most notably, this extended to the army, you know, the force publique, which had an almost entirely white command structure. The overall commander of the force publique was Lieutenant General Emil Janssen. And after independence, he gave this very provocative speech to uh, the black non-commissioned officers that served under him. And in this speech, he insisted that nothing about the army, you know, its recruitment methods, its way of doing things, its internal culture, i.e. the racism, nothing was going to change. In fact, he wrote on a chalkboard, before independence is the same as after independence, you know. So these black non-commissioned officers mutinied, and this mutiny spread to other garrisons in the Congo. And there were riots, there were reports of rapes and murders of white citizens. And these reports were picked up and amplified into scare stories about, you know, white genocide, basically. And there followed an exodus of um, settlers, white settlers, to white-ruled countries to the south. And in turn, these white countries resented the influx, and they used the chaos to justify their own racist control of their parts of Africa. This is what happens, you know, when you let the the natives rule. Now, to what extent Janssen's had been hoping for something like this to happen, that is worth considering. Uh, He certainly didn't waste any time in recommending to Lumumba that he call in the Belgian army to get things under control. But instead, Lumumba tried to calm the situation by uh, promoting black officers, one rank, and appointing Mobutu to army chief of staff. This was an attempt to begin a project of Africanization of the military. The long-term plan was to extend this project out to all Congolese institutions. Uh, The Belgian army then intervened in July, and it quickly expanded from, you know, protecting fleeing settlers... Uh, to full-on engagement with the Congolese military. Having been denied help by the Americans and the UN in putting down the uprising and ejecting the Belgian presence, Lumumba turned to the Soviet Union. This gave the Belgians and the Americans the excuse they needed to escalate the propaganda campaign against him, you know. So he was described as an anti-white maniac, a devil, 
surrounded by hashish-crazed militias who were intent on bringing communism to Africa. And the presence of uh, the Soviet Union was proof of that, you know. Violence and chaos in the Congo. Barely 11 days after official independence from Belgium, Congolese troops mutiny and begin a wave of attacks and looting throughout the far-flung sectors of the former colony. Meanwhile, in Belgium and in African countries bordering on the Congo, refugees are pouring in with harrowing tales of violence and of hasty flight. At least 10 Europeans were reported killed in a weekend of violence with armed clashes in the key cities of Elizabethville, Stanleyville and Luaburg, which was to be the new nation's capital. At the request of Congolese officials, Belgian paratroops were recalled to quell the native army's mutiny and reign of terror, a harsh awakening to reality from golden dreams of independence. So Mobutu was also up to mischief here, uh, because whenever he met with British or Belgian or American diplomats or military brass, he would tell them what he knew they wanted to hear, you know, about the situation in Congo, about Lumumba and his state of mind. And he would kind of subtly propose himself as the only viable power in the country. Now, Belgium, having originally said um, just before the crisis that it couldn't possibly absorb the thousands of Belgian civil servants and bureaucrats who wanted to return to the metropole, you know, there were no jobs for them. Suddenly pulled an about face and offered these very generous resettlement payments for anyone who wanted to go back. And this policy effectively punched huge holes through various institutions in the Congo and left many uh, government services unable to function, basically. Now, off the back of the crisis, the Belgian advisors surrounding Moïse Chumbe, um helped engineer the secession of Katanga. Katanga was probably the Belgians' real desire all along. You know, it was where the bulk of the colonial elite and various Belgian financial institutions made their money, you know, owing to its rich resources. Uh, Union Minier, that was strongest in Katanga, and the white elite there was very close to Shumbe and his people. Uh, Shumbe was from a kind of uh, upper-class uh background through its uh, subsidiary Umicor, Union Minierian by extension, its friends in the Belgian establishment, controlled vast reserves of, you know, copper, tin, and about half the world's cobalt. It was the Belgian mining companies acting at the behest of the Belgian state who financed the secession and paid Chumbe and his faction. Um, and other Belgian companies were also spreading money around on behalf of the, the Belgian government to undermine support for Lumumba and finance an organized resistance to his government. This project wasn't as efficient as that might sound, you know, very lackadaisical, very haphazard, very disorganized, but they were trying anything. Uh, and I can't emphasize enough either how terrified Shumbe's circle and their friends in Union Minier were that Lumumba was going to seize the mines and nationalize them, you know, because they were all getting rich off of them. So the Belgian state, it sent technical advisors and uh, Belgian military officers to train the breakaway army in Katanga. 
the Belgian army were fucking despised by the native uh, Congolese in Katanga. And they implemented a virtual police state to ensure that the mines kept operating and further undermining Lumumba and consolidating this Katanga secession. When Hammarskjöld visited the Congo during the crisis, he made a point of meeting only with Shumbe, uh, which was a very powerful symbolic move at such a delicate moment. Um, and it sent uh, a clear message that the Katanga regime was legitimate because the UN leader says it is. You know, it's legitimate in a way that Lumumba's government is not. Now, Shumbe insisted the secession was the result of an organic process, you know, that had been led by indigenous organizations. But even the UN later admitted, quote, the idea that the Katanga resistance to the Congolese government is a native and African affair is a myth for foreign consumption and is scoffed at in private by Europeans here. So Katanga also gave the Belgian government a sort of plausible deniability. You know, they argued that this is an internal African matter. We've got nothing to do with why this secession happened, even though at the time, plenty of people knew that they were financing it. But what they also had was a very, uh, I would say, deliberately ambiguous chain of command, you know. And what I mean by that. Uh, it's probably best to uh, to read this passage from the uh, the Belgian Committee Inquiry report. Quote, There is a lack of transparency in the policy and coordination between the different ministers who were involved with Congo policies. The Cabinet Council repeatedly discussed Congolese issues, took decisions, often because Wigny explicitly asked for directives. But in reality, these decisions were frequently rather vague and differently interpreted by the ministers involved and people in the field. The commission also found that the distribution of power was very vague amongst a number of ministers, e.g. the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Wigny, and the Minister of African Affairs, Diaspermont Linden. There was also a difference in vision. The responsibilities of this department proved to be very flexible. Not only was the department in charge of the custodial territories of Rwanda Urundi, but in practice also of the Congo as a consequence of the so-called technical assistance. Another aspect of this chaotic distribution of powers is related to supervision over the Belgian military forces in the Congo. This power escaped from the Ministry of Defence after October of 1960, but arrived at the door of the Ministry of African Affairs. Thus, Katangan politics largely escaped the supervision of foreign affairs. So by August, it seems that the West had pretty much decided what had to happen to resolve the Congo crisis. Uh, the Belgian army, it had seized airfields and closed down radio stations and newspapers that were sympathetic to Lumumba. And they also dictated where he was allowed to travel. I mean, this guy is the prime minister of this country and Belgium are telling him what he can and can't do and where he can and can't go. And then the Belgian government um, increased the amount of money that it was spending to buy support for a move against Lumumba. Lawrence Devlin, he was the CIA station chief in Leopoldville. Um, he received a telegram from Alan Dulles on the 20th of 
26th, sorry, of August, that read, quote, in high quarters here, it is the clear-cut conclusion that if Lumumba continues to hold high office, the inevitable result will at best be chaos and at worst pave the way to communist takeover of the Congo with disastrous consequences for the prestige of the UN and for the interests of the free world generally. Consequently, we conclude that his removal must be an urgent and prime objective, and that under existing conditions, this should be of a high priority of our covert operations. And similarly, uh, Hamashgold at the UN, he'd been quoted as saying that Lumumba, quote, must at the very least be broken politically, at the very least. And yeah, so Lumumba, as you can imagine, he became increasingly desperate, and paranoid and erratic as that summer ground on. And on August 9th, he declared a state of emergency. Uh, Belgium's network of informants and spies inside his cabinet, uh, they spread rumours designed to further unsettle and demoralise Lumumba. Every meeting he held, every conversation he had, every solution or plan he discussed was reported to Belgian intelligence. And then a rebellion in South Kasai was put down by Mobutu on Lumumba's orders. And Mobutu let his troops run fucking wild. And they began massacring civilians and this triggered um, an ethnic conflict. And at all times, we should be asking how much of this got out of control as events just accelerated and overtook people and how much of it got out of control by design. Now, apparently um, persuaded by Belgian and US operatives, you know, that Lumumba was planning a, a coup d'etat. This is when Kasavubu dismissed him from government on September the 5th, and he requested that the UN bar Lumumba from all airports and from entering any radio stations where it was feared that, you know, he could make speeches to uh, drum up support. And Lumumba in turn uh, ordered Mobutu to arrest Kasavubu. Kasavubu then said, nope you need to arrest Lumumba. Um, What's important to keep in mind here is that everybody involved knew that removing Lumumba from office was not enough. You know, he would have to be killed to send a message. Nobody wanted to be the first to say it, but everybody knew that's where it was going. Um, And they also knew that killing him would require the mass suppression of nationalist forces, you know, nationalist movements. And this could only be achieved with an outright military dictatorship. So here we enter uh, Mobutu, who he mulled his options over, and then he announced that both Kasavubu and Lumumba were to be neutralized. You know, effectively, he carried out a coup, a bloodless coup, but a coup nonetheless. Uh, UN forces, they then surrounded Lumumba's residence for, as they put it, his own protection. But it looked very much to uh, a lot of observers like he, the UN had effectively put a prime minister of a sovereign country under house arrest. Everyone involved also knew that if Lumumba escaped and made it to Stanleyville, uh, which is where he had a considerable power base, he would become nearly untouchable and he could well end up back in office. If he was sent to Katanga, he would almost certainly be killed. A new chapter begins in the dark and tragic history of the Congo with the return to Leopoldville of deposed Premier Lumumba following his capture by crack commandos of strongman Colonel Mobutu. 
taken to Mobutu's headquarters past a jeering, threatening crowd, Lumumba was impassive at this lowest ebb of his stormy career. Mobutu watched as his troops manhandled Lumumba, but promised the pro-red Lumumba a fair trial on charges of inciting the army to rebellion. Lumumba was removed to an army prison outside the capital as his supporters in Stanleyville seized control of Oriental province and threatened the return of disorder. Before that, Lumumba suffered more indignities, including being forced to eat a speech which he restated his claim to be the Congo's rightful premier. Even in bonds, Lumumba remains a dangerous prisoner, storm center of savage loyalties and equally savage opposition. So this is uh, from Isaac uh, Schotner writing in The New Yorker. Quote, The next several months played out as a tragedy. Lumumba's wife was denied access to medical care and gave birth prematurely to a daughter who died. Lumumba was arrested twice by Mobutu, who sided with Kasavubu before asserting himself with CIA backing as the country's preeminent power broker. Lumumba escaped but was caught, with UN soldiers looking on while he was beaten. As O'Brien later wrote, the United Nations displayed a concern for legal punctilio when it was a question of rescuing Lumumba, which was quite absent from their very uninhibited phase of activity when it was a question of bringing about Lumumba's political destruction. Uh, the final days were gruesome. On January 17, 1961, Mobutu flew a captive Lumumba to Katanga, where Shombi and his associates, with Belgian officials and mercenaries in attendance, beat him for hours. Shombe was then covered in Lumumba's blood by the time they were done. Uh, Lumumba was then driven to a remote area and murdered, along with two members of his political party. You are going to kill us, Lumumba asked. Franz Vercher, a local police commissioner, simply answered, yes. After the men were dead, the killers poured sulfuric acid on the bodies. And then it mentions that one of the Belgians present, Gerard Soute, brought home Lumumba's molars and a finger as trophies. So we'd be remiss if we uh, didn't point out what a number of people have pointed out, is, which is that the timing of Lumumba's murder is very interesting. Um, the plan to kill him was an Eisenhower-era policy, and some of the incoming Kennedy administration were in favor of a closer relationship with Lumumba and were quite supportive of the you know, decolonization and I believe Lumumba was killed three days before Kennedy was inaugurated. Uh, if they'd have kept him alive any longer, there is a chance that Kennedy may have, may have given orders to have him released. Kasavubu remained as president 
and Shambi eventually became prime minister, but it was understood that Mobutu was the real power in the country, owing to those CIA and Belgian intelligence connections and the faith that Western capital had in him as well at this point. Now, there followed a few years of civil war and political crisis, and this culminated in Mobutu seizing total power in November of 1965. But we're forgetting something, aren't we? Because in the early hours of 8th of September 1961, Dark Hammarskjöld was on board a Douglas DC-6 with 15 other UN officials on a flight to the Congo-Rhodesia border. And his intention was to devise a ceasefire agreement between Katanga and Congo. Uh, in fact, he was due to meet with Shombe. <laughs> President Moshe Shombe called back from Europe when fighting broke out between UN troops and his Katangis forces accuses the United Nations of attempting to sabotage the economic well-being of his people. The UN, on the other hand, says that they are moving against the Katangis troops in Elizabethville to help drive mercenary troops from the army. These pictures of the widespread street fighting in Katanga's capital were all made behind native lines as they attempted to drive UN forces from the airport and from areas surrounding the city. And the American feeling is high in Elizabethville. No US troops are taking part in the action, but the Katangis resent US Army Globemaster transports flying in men and supplies for the United Nations. 10 miles from Undola Airport, the pl this plane just vanished uh, and it was found destroyed about 10 miles from the airport the next day. Now, there are a dozen or so um, eyewitness accounts of a second plane firing on the D6 and shooting it down. And despite the plane not being found until the next day, a witness who spoke to the UN said that they saw two Jeeps rushed towards the crash site a few minutes after the plane hit the ground and exploded. And as Lisa Pease has noted, quote, Beyond the strange circumstances surrounding the downing of the plane, the plane itself contained interesting, if controversial, evidence. 201 live rounds, 342 bullets, and 362 cartridge cases were recovered from both the crash site and the dead bodies. Bullets were found in the bodies of six people, two of whom were Swedish guards. The British Rhodesian authorities concluded that the ammunition had simply exploded in the intense heat of the fire and just happened to shoot right into the humans present. But this contention was refuted by Major C.F. Westell, a ballistics authority who said, I can certainly describe as sheer nonsense the statement that cartridges of machine guns or pistols detonated in a fire can penetrate a human body. This subplot, if you like, about Dag Hammarskjöld is an absolute maze, you know, and it's tempting to get into it here, but we're already kind of going quite long. However, it is worth asking if it was an assassination, why? What was the motive? And it could be that he'd outlived his usefulness, you know, since with Lumumba gone, he began to take a more neutral view of the situation. And this meant that um, he was more open to the idea of negotiating a kind of a ceasefire between Congo and Katanga and reintegrating Katanga into Congo. 
The state of Katanga, it only lasted until January of 1963. But in 1961, it was receiving considerable support from Belgian mining companies, the CIA, uh, and the British as well. Don't forget that the British had a considerable amount of money tied up in Union Minieri and Societe Generale. Now, these forces at the time genuinely believed that Katanga was a viable long-term project, you know. They were sucking huge profits, vampire-like, out of the region. And they were using that and the chaos in the Congo as justification to keep the secessionist project going. Don't forget, this was Africa during an ongoing crisis. And I think that it's possible a calculation was made that it was safer to get rid of Hammerskjöld to stall any potential reintegration of Katanga before certain vested interests were sure who was going to be in power long-term. Like Mobutu had impressed, you know, the Americans and the Belgians and the British, but he wasn't yet fully in control, you know. He was still paying lip service to democracy. And from an imperialist perspective, I can see how they would convince themselves that indulging the Congolese desire to vote for their own leaders had already forced them to take a firm hand with Lumumba and chaos had followed and they weren't going to give up these mining profits you know obviously there are half a dozen other theories about what was behind Hammerskjold's uh, alleged assassination and we just do not have time to get into it all I think we probably will do a more long-term forensic exhaustive you know, investigation um, a, a ways down the road. I recommend you watch uh, Cold Case Hammerskjöld uh, if you haven't already. So in 1965, Mobutu took over properly, you know. He basically suspended democracy and adopted what might be called populist anti-politics, you know. He brought a measure of stability and order back to the Congo after the violence of the, the early 60s. And at first, he was everything his Western backers had hoped he might be. So he used a combination of force and a savvy adoption of the aesthetics of national liberation um, as part of a policy he called authenticity, you know, so... Like Congo was renamed Zaire in 1971. Congolese towns and cities, they were given Africanized names. Christmas was moved from December to June. Priests were warned that if they baptized kids with European names, they would be uh, sent to prison. And Mobutu overhauled his wardrobe. You know, he started dressing in more traditional African fits. And he presented himself as the heir to Lumumba's legacy while banning other political parties and folding all the trade unions into one organization that existed at the discretion of his regime. And he also implemented this rolling program of public executions designed to, you know, terrorize dissidents and his rivals into submission. He had access to luxury villas and secret bank accounts in Europe. You know, he partnered with uh, the mining companies to get cut of the profits from the operations there. And some of the untold millions he was stealing went towards equipping his own private militias, you know. And these militias, in turn, were trained by Belgian mercenaries and Israeli security services. The Belgian influence waned 
in the 1970s and it's owed in part to very canny economic policies that Mobutu implemented in the late 60s per Guylaine C. Kabwit. Quote, Mobutu ordered drastic currency devaluations as part of the monetary reforms of 1967 and 1968, launched a code of investment which began to attract foreign capital from the USA, Japan, West Germany and other Western nations, while reducing Zaire's dependence on Belgium. As a result, in 1969 the National Bank reported that for the first time the gross national product had exceeded the level reached before June of 1959. The country had also a surplus in its balance of payments and foreign currency reserves totaled $250 million, due largely to the high price of copper, the nation's major export. And it goes without saying, you know, that his regime was ludicrously corrupt. And after the oil crisis of 1973, the Zaire economy it all but collapsed. Um, he knew, though, that he was protected to quite a large extent, because he was still the company's man. You know, the US, Belgium, France, they had more money tied up in Zaire than any other African country. And Mobutu enabled power players from all three countries, and from Britain, and from elsewhere, to use Zaire as a kind of combined money laundering hub and source of off-the-books funding, you know, for covert operations elsewhere in Africa and the Middle East. So to them, it was worth giving him quite a long leash because the benefits were there, you know, to such an extent that in the middle of this economic crisis, they allowed him to go to China and then come back wearing like a Mao uh, tunic style thing and talking about how he'd shifted to the left and he was embracing, you know, socialist politics and this, that and the other. It was whatever he needed to do and say uh, to sell himself. So in 1977, the Front for the National Liberation of Congo invaded Zaire with the aim of overthrowing Mobutu, and they entered from Katanga, which had by this point been renamed Shaba by Mobutu. Hence, this war uh, is referred to as Shaba I. The FNLC, they claimed some kind of Marxist politics, and they called the invasion a war of liberation, but... Many of its soldiers had fought for the uh, the Portuguese in Angola, and others were kind of veterans of the Katangan uh, secession, and on the secessionist side as well. Um, Cuba declined to offer them material support because Castro distrusted how serious they really were about an actual socialist revolution. Now, regardless, the Americans, the French, and the Belgians threw their weight behind Mobutu, whose army almost completely collapsed um, and seemed to prefer rampaging against civilians to actually defending, you know, the territorial integrity of Zaire. And in addition to its resources and money laundering utility, Zaire was also massively in debt to the IMF and around a hundred other banks around the world. Uh, so it was the threat of a potential communist regime coming to power in Zaire that, you know, a regime that wouldn't respect how things were done, that was also uh, what was compelling the West to intervene on Mobutu's behalf here. They wanted that debt repaying. So France airlifted uh, Moroccan troops into the country, did this by coordinating operations with, drumroll, the Safari Club. That's right. Safari Club, the octopus, has surfaced once again. 
And uh, yeah, France chose Moroccan troops to to give the world the impression that this was an African war, that there was no, you know, international involvement in this. So although the FNLC was pushed out, the Shaba II invasion uh, began in 1978. And again, the French, the Belgians and the Americans supported Mobutu. Now, at some point in the future, we may return to these two conflicts and really dig into the full story. But for tonight, what I want to draw your attention to is the role of Belgium, um, specifically the role of the Belgian intelligence and fascist paramilitary underworld here. And when we dig into this, what we find is that Africa, once again, was being used as a laboratory for the Belgian secret state to experiment. Now, remember that structure of the, the stay-behind network that we sketched in episode one? Now, of course, we'll be going much deeper on that in episodes to come, but get a load of this. This is from NATO Secret Armies by Danielle Ganser. Quote, The operations of SDRA-8 outside Belgium were not limited to the Mediterranean. As the Belgian senators found with much surprise, members of the Belgian secret army, much like their colleagues, of the secret Portuguese army had also operated in the Belgian colonies in Africa. It has been confirmed by a responsible authority of SDRA-8 that the paracommando instructors have participated in operations of the Belgian army in Zaire in the 1970s and in Rwanda. These interventions are in flagrant contradiction to the affirmed rules, according to which, for reasons of total secrecy, the instructors and the agents should not mix with military or social activities in times of peace. On reading this, I'm reminded of a line of dialogue from the character of uh, Maurice Jobson in the Red Riding trilogy of movies. Now, he's in a bar talking to Eddie Dunford, you know, played by Andrew Garfield. And Eddie is our main character, really. And Maurice is talking about Northern Ireland which, you know, England's mini-colony, and the prevailing gloom of the 1970s in Britain. And he says this, quote, Everything's linked, Eddie. It's a conspiracy. We've got MI5 keeping an eye on Harold Wilson, Mountbatten waiting in the wings with a military junta. There are death squads out there. They give them a taste in Northern Ireland, bring them back home hungry, and every city has its death squads. Sentence first, evidence after. There are death squads out there. Give them a taste. Bring them back home hungry. Sentence first. Evidence after. Given where this series is about to go, I really must insist you keep this in mind. So the corrupt ties between Zaire and Belgian elites that continued long after the CIA had assumed the more dominant role in the country. This is from David Fouquet, uh, writing in the Christian Science Monitor, October 8th, 1982. Um, and again, some of the Belgian officials mentioned here are going to become persons of interest in the Detroux affair. But for legal reasons, I am reluctant to specify which ones. Anyway, quote, 
Tales of official corruption and extravagance, which have swelled around many central African governments in recent years, have surfaced again concerning the regime of Zairean President Mobutu. A report has just been leaked here on sales of Zaire's mining output for the personal gain of Mobutu and his clan. It also describes freewheeling spending with funds from the country's central bank and lavish gifts of diamonds to the wives of European and African leaders. The 50-page report was written by a former international civil servant sent to unscramble the country's financial chaos a few years ago. The charges link a number of key Belgian officials, including two former prime ministers, to Zairean financial deals or payments. The accusations come amid several other developments that together could put Mobutu to the severest test of his 17 years in the former Belgian colony's highest office, among them a barrage of charges of human rights violations, torture and kidnappings in Zaire, and formation of a new joint opposition front to Mobutu among the welter of exiles here. There are also allegations that prominent Belgian figures were involved in large financial payoffs and transactions with Zaire. They include former Prime Ministers Edmund Leberton and Paul van den Boenhans, the current Communications Minister Herman de Croo, Foreign Ministry Policy Director Alfred Cain, and University Professor Paul Dushi. These developments, according to many sources here, could have further implications for future ties with Zaire and President Mobutu after years of an uneasy relationship. We met them one by one. The reasons why Chambi is so cocksure that he can clean up the Congo mess. His white mercenaries. They're the world's last soldiers of fortune, outdated relics of the past. They're outcasts from the modern world, which expelled them, or from which they fled. On the lamb from an infamous past, pursuing a restless present, a burnt-out adventure, a dead fate. They're all ex-something, ex-anti-guerrilla fighters from French Algeria, British Malaysia, Borneo, or Kenya, ex-SS officers from Germany, ex-CIA pilots from Cuba, ex-farmers from Kenya, ex-residents of the Sudan, Egypt, Tanganyika, ex-students from South Africa and Southern Rhodesia. Some follow a macabre ideal of glory and adventure. Some believe they're fighting a last-ditch battle against communism. Some are known as les affreux, the horrors, who just love war. Two days ago, 15 of them tore Kisaka from the grasp of over 400 rebels. Tomorrow, 40 of them will try what the entire Congolese army couldn't achieve, the conquest of Boendi. Attack on Boende will use air power. Air power means these two 20-year-old American T-6s, rickety antiques held together by chewing gum and string. Their pilots are Tom O'Keefe and Somerset Wilson, ex-Rhodesians whose families were murdered by the Angolan rebels. They've rented their planes and themselves to Chambi for $500 a month and a life insurance policy. So far, they haven't been paid and they haven't found an insurance company to underwrite the policy, but still they fly, with limping motors over rebel-infested jungles for free. Today, as they left, they signed the required forms in their usual way. Destination, hell. Reason for flight, personal business. The victors have no sympathy for their prisoners. Today, it's the rebels' turn to suffer. But tomorrow, when the mercenaries move on, other rebels will return. Then it will be someone else's turn. <laughs> 
It's an endless cycle, a dance of death that's lasted five years. It's worse now because the Cold War has moved in. Black against white, east against west, black against black. No one ever wins. No one finally loses, except the dead. Under the swarming ants and flies and the pitiless sun, they rot together, black and white, with absolute biological equality. So we are now nearing the end of our excursion to the Congo. And I hope you feel like this was worthwhile. Um, the Belgian experience in Africa has directly and indirectly influenced all the events that we are preoccupied with in this mini-series. There's no way around it. And one definition of fascism, as I'm sure you know, is that it is colonial exploitation returning to the imperial core, to the metropole. Now, I agree with that. But in Belgium's case, there's something else going on. And I've tried to define the shape of this thing, but it's too amorphous and indistinct. It's the vague outline of something monstrous, but it's in the dark. You know, it's gone as soon as you try to reach for it and describe its, its contours. Belgium thought that it could complete itself in Africa. And after 80 years of violence and murder, it was no closer to finding that completion. The Congo only offered its ruling class and, you know, the adjacent networks the opportunity to knit themselves closer together. You know, the vast majority of Belgians felt no benefit from all this exploitation and pillaging. And yet they bought the lie anyway. You can easily find newsreel footage of like thousands and thousands of cheering people uh, celebrating the, you know, the triumphant intervention of Belgian paratroopers during the Congo crisis, uh, you know, on the streets of Brussels. And on some level, unity through colonialism, it, it sort of worked, but it didn't last. And a major reason I thought it was worth taking the time to discuss Congo, you know, to the point where it's ended up spilling over into two parts. It's because it's a story that's rich in like accidental symbolism you know it's it's full of these granular moments that seem to manifest the broader ideas at work in this series um so the role of political and social amnesia in belgian society for example uh, the committee report into lumumba's death it reserves just two paragraphs for the role of economic interests one of which is a 17 word sentence you know and the economic interest is the pure reason they were over there. You know, nothing else mattered. Everything else was just self-mythology. Uh, quote, in certain instances and in relation to Katanga, there was a confusion of private and public interests. Government officials in Katanga linked to the Belgian technical mission or the Bureau Conseil used financial advisors and other facilities of the Union Minière du Hoc Katanga for their own benefits. That's it. That's the extent of... Um, how deep it really probes into the uh, the collusion and the binding together of the state and private capital, you know. But then in the story of Lumumba's remains and the grinding process of returning them to his family, you can see the remnants of that colonial mindset. You know, you get the sense that even in the midst of unresolved grief and trauma, it's still important that Belgium sends the Lumumba family 
a message. You know, it's so important that the Lumumba family knows its place. And then we have that poison we mentioned at the start of the show, you know, the way that it spreads and affects everything that it touches. So, you know, the loss of Congo that triggered a furious, paranoid reaction from the more fanatical sections of the Belgian far right, which would have ramifications for the rest of the neo-Nazi underworld and the gladio-connected entities in Belgium. The most obvious way this manifested is in how these right-wing colonial elites ensured that their investments were protected in Congo and then in Zaire. And then they retreated back to Belgium and they set about expanding and strengthening the neo-fascist underground in mid-20th century Europe. And Belgium was a kind of nexus point for this. Next episode, we're going to get fully into that. But we can briefly discuss some individuals who will be of interest to us very, very soon. One of them was called Jean-Francois Theria. He was a Nazi collaborator and a fascist political theorist who was vehemently opposed to the process of decolonization. He was a member of, uh, of the Civic Action Movement, which was a Belgian outfit that allied itself to the organization uh, Armée Secrète, which was a French paramilitary neo-Nazi group, and Jungerup, um, which was an explicitly Nazi group that allied him with Émile Lesserf, who was the editor of New Europe magazine. New Europe magazine was in turn funded by Benoit de Bonvoisin. Uh, he was the Black Baron. He will be a major figure in episodes to come. He also had numerous business concerns in the Congo slash Zaire. Athelia believed in this syncretic blend of socialist economics and Nazi-inspired nationalism, you know, what they went on to describe as national Bolshevism. He would eventually go on to co-found the European Community Party, which, yeah, was very, very uh, Nazbol, I suppose. Uh, the man that he founded this group with was Luc Jaurès. Now, Jaurès had been raised in the Congo, and he felt a lifelong resentment over the Belgian withdrawal even though initially he described himself as a Maoist. Um, but then he joined the Walloon Communist Youth, and this is where he popped up on the Belgian gendarmes' radar. It's likely that he was recruited as an intelligence asset at this point, and despite his apparent like communist ideology, he participated in covert action in Zaire during Shaba too. He moved in extremely niche esoteric circles as well. And in 1984, he co-founded the Order of the Solar Temple. And yes, we will be talking about the Order of the Solar Temple later on. And then there are other more indirect links that have profound resonance for our story. Take the example of um, Annie Bouti, who was a Belgian lawyer whose mentor was a man called Jacques Marais. And through him, Annie was introduced to a world of elite connections that spanned Europe and beyond. Marais was also an advisor and confidant of Mobutu. He helped manage his money and he passed information from the Belgian neo-colonial elite to Zaire. Annie would eventually meet and fall in love with Michel Niel, better known to English-speaking uh, listeners as Jean-Michel Niel. Niel was a well-connected political fixer and businessman in Belgium 
and Annie helped him find even more contacts in high society through Marie. Niol would become a major suspect in the Dutroux affair. Uh, he was accused by numerous witnesses of participating in sex trafficking, murder, drug dealing, and blackmail alongside Annie. Uh, in fact, he once bragged to a Guardian journalist that he was the monster of Belgium and nobody would touch him because of the dirt that he had on everyone in the Belgian establishment. And maybe the most explicit illustration of what I'm trying to get at here um, the most graphic example of what we were discussing, you know, the monsters born in the fog, the poison that spreads, the sins returning to the imperial core, this harrowing, unnerving way it, that colonialism dehumanizes not just the victims, but the perpetrators. It can be found by looking at two Belgian teachers who fell in love in the mid-50s and moved to the Congo. They met in Ixel. Victor was 27 and Janine was 20, and within a few months, they were pregnant. Victor was about to hit the age limit that would have excluded him from being able to settle in the Congo, so he moved there ahead of Janine. She gave birth to their first son in Ixel in 1956, and when he was two months old, they joined Victor in Africa. Now, this young family settled in Burundi, um, and Andre, their second son, he was born in December of 1957, they had a third in February of 1959, and they named him Jacques. Now, Victor and Janine accused each other of domestic violence and infidelity. Both of them were rumoured to have abused their students and the local kids in the Congo. And their children would eventually say that they were also sexually abused by their parents as they were growing up. When the Congo crisis erupted, Victor and Janine at first seemed to have decided to wait it out. But when Burundi declared independence in July of 1962, the Dutroux family returned to Belgium. Mm -hmm. 